Well, as we, as we get into the sermon, I, Isaiah 9 is where we're going to be, so if you don't have a Bible open, you can do that now. Uh, turn to the middle of your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, it's in the Old Testament, Isaiah. Uh, open it up on your app as well. Uh, you can also follow along on the screen. We'd really prefer you to look at God's Word yourself as we get into this. Our series is called uh, The Names of Jesus, and if you think about it, names are really important. Like Even in my family, I think about uh, our names and our family. My wife's name is Jaya. She's Indian, and her name is Jaya, and maybe some of you don't know this, but her name Jaya is in the Indian National Anthem. Not everybody can say that, right? It's a pretty amazing thing. It means victory, and so they sing. I'll sing a little bit for you. Jaya, hey, Jaya, hey. And so everybody in India sings my wife's name. Isn't that incredible? Uh, and so names are really significant. Our, our kids' names, we wanted Indian names because uh, this is not Indian, right? Uh, this is Caucasian. This is white, very white. And so we wanted them to be marked by some of Jaya's culture as well. And so we had to really think through what are the meanings of these names. Indian names have a lot of different meanings. Um, we had to think through what names could my family pronounce, Right? It was a big decision as we thought about these names because there's significance in these names. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Uh, this may shock you. I don't know. But my full name, I, I go by Tim, but my full name is James Timothy Birdwell. My parents, uh, because they love me so much, decided before I was even born to, to name me James Timothy but to call me Tim. And so I don't know if that's you. I don't know if that's your plight in life, your life sentence as well, but it's been mine. And so in school, guys, I don't know if you experienced this in college, uh, I had to change my name. And, and every time they'd be like, James, and I'd be like, here, but you know, I go by Tim, and they'd be like, Jim, no, Tim. And they're like, why? And I'm like, well, James, you know. And so uh, names are significant. There's a lot behind a name. And the reality is, even this morning, all of your names mean something. There's thoughts, there's memories that are associated with your name. As you think about other people in your family, friends, neighbors, people in your past, there's thoughts that come to mind when you think about that person's name. Some of them are incredible. Some of them are horrifying, right? Just by mentioning someone's name. You see it in the Bible. There's significance in a a name. Jesus uh, would change somebody's life or or God would change somebody's life, and he would often change their, their name. So you think of like Abram changes to Abraham, Saul to Paul, Jacob, to Israel. There's significance in a name in the Bible, and none more so significant than the name of Jesus. If you look throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New, Jesus has lots of names, and they're really significant. They describe who he is and what he has done. And so as we look at Isaiah 9, we're just going to focus on these names, but he has so many more names that describe his character and his nature, his person and his work, that there is significance, ultimate significance in the name of Jesus. And we're going to look at Isaiah 9 to see that significance. Before uh, we get to Wonderful Counselor, which is the first name he's given in Isaiah chapter 9, I want to give you some context. Uh, One, just as we set up this series for where we're going, 1 through 7 of chapter 9, uh, and also to talk about prophecy. That's the genre of scripture that we're in. And so you need to know these things to kind of frame it up uh, as we study the names of Jesus this morning. So some context for you. As we look at Isaiah 9, this is about 600 to 700 years before Jesus. And Isaiah is speaking into difficult times for the Jewish people. There's a harsh reality that they're experiencing as the Jewish nation. And Isaiah is speaking hope 
into that harsh reality. And so that's what we step into, Isaiah chapter 9. Maybe you've only looked at, at verse 6 and 7 on a Christmas card or in Handel's Messiah, right? And you've just focused on those at Christmas, but you need to understand a little bit of the context. We're about 600 to 700 years before Jesus, and these are harsh times, and Isaiah is proclaiming hope in the midst of these harsh times. And he does that, if you look at the verses with me, Starting in verse 1, he starts to give contrast of what is now and what will be in the future. And so if you look at verse 1, it's, it goes from gloom to glorious. And so they are currently in gloom. Isaiah chapter 8, uh, you don't do that now, but later on, go back and read Isaiah 8. They are in a, a midst of turmoil. That there's a nation called Assyria that you see a lot in the Old Testament that has risen up as a great empire and military force that is going to invade the Jewish people. And so they're experiencing a, a harsh time. It's gloom, as Isaiah describes it, and there's effects of that. There's effects on the land. Look at verse 1. You see these different names of lands that are going to be ravaged. But then he says that one day they won't be. That one day that, that gloom will be made glorious. And you see that contrast of what's taking place now. It won't always be. This harsh reality, it won't always be that there is hope and Isaiah is proclaiming that to the Jewish people. There's more contrast. If you look at verse 2, there's darkness to light. This is common imagery that you see across Scripture. We saw it in the book of Ephesians. Uh, it's commonly associated with Jesus, that he is the light, right, the light of the world. And so we see that even in Isaiah 9, 600 to 700 years before Jesus, you see this contrast of, of light and darkness. If you read Isaiah, you see that God's people weren't walking in the light. They were walking in darkness. They weren't looking to God and his will. They were looking to themselves and their will. They were walking in darkness, and it was so much so that he further emphasizes it. Look at verse 2. He says they weren't just walking in it. They were dwelling in deep darkness. That's where they lived. And so Isaiah is describing that, but he's also describing that something, or rather in this case someone, would come and shine light into that darkness. It's hope in the midst of their harsh reality. If you look at verses three through four, three through five, rather, it goes from burden to joy. He begins to describe their enemies being defeated, and he talks about that, that one day they're going to be a multiplied nation. They're going to experience a harvest. They're going to experience increasing joy. If you skip down to verse seven, there's a new government that's going to be in place where there's peace, justice righteousness forevermore. And so things are difficult for the Jewish people in this context, but they won't always be. It's a harsh reality, but Isaiah is proclaiming hope, and he's proclaiming hope for them, and he's proclaiming hope for you. And so some of you need to hear that this morning, especially as we enter into the Christmas season. Maybe some of you are in that harsh reality, and maybe it's not as described exactly in the book of Isaiah. Maybe you don't have a physical enemy coming to destroy you, uh, but like we talked about last week with spiritual warfare, maybe you have a spiritual enemy that is coming after you. Maybe you have sin that is gripping you, that's crippling you in your life. Maybe just as we get into the holidays, family drama is at its all-time peak, and you're just drained and exhausted and stressed, and you are in the midst of some harsh times. Listen, in the midst of this Christmas season, you need to know that there's, there's hope. And it's not found in lights. 
and it's not found in shopping, and it's not found in hot chocolate. It's not found in carols. It's found in Jesus Christ. The same Jesus, listen, the same Jesus proclaimed in the book of Isaiah. Do you see this? The same Jesus that gives them hope is the same Jesus that gives you and I hope so many years later. And some of you need to embrace that hope this morning as we look at this Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah. The point that Isaiah is making is the point that I want to make to you that the point of Christmas is that Jesus has come. Amen? Jesus has come. He comes as a baby, but he grows up to be a man. He's sinless. He dies the death that we deserved, and he rises again in victory. And that is our hope in this Christmas season. That is the hope in Isaiah. And so Isaiah's point is Jesus. He's pointing in the future to Jesus who would come. And biblically, we call that prophecy. And so I want to let you know just a little bit about what prophecy is so you get this. It's a, a genre of scripture, one, in the Old Testament where we see different things. We have prophets like Daniel, Hosea, Jeremiah, others that would come along and they would say things and they would ultimately speak for God. And so sometimes they would give direction to the people. Sometimes they would give warning to the people. Sometimes they would give counsel to the people. Sometimes they would pray over the people. They were people who spoke on behalf of God. And then sometimes they would talk about the future. They would declare what was to come. And that's prophecy biblically. And even if you look at Isaiah 9, look at those verses with me again, just verse 6. Isaiah speaks as if this is already happening. Have you ever noticed that on the Christmas card? It says, for unto us a child is born. What tense is that? Present, yeah. Unto us a son is given. And maybe you wonder, like, well, I, I, don't, I don't know my Bible that well, but I think Old Testament's before Jesus. Uh, Isaiah, I don't know if you realize this. Jesus wasn't there yet, right? He wasn't born yet. He wasn't given quite yet. Well, you need to know it's prophecy. That's why this is important. That's why context and understanding prophecy is important because Isaiah is speaking as this is true. As this is already true because he knows, he's so confident it is going to become true. Why? Because these aren't his words. They're God's words. This isn't his promise. This is God's promise. That is a, a prophecy. And Isaiah was a great prophet who points to Jesus. As you look at the Old Testament, I read that there are about 322 direct prophecies that talk about the character, the nature of a Messiah who would come, that we see fulfilled in Jesus. You see, the whole Bible points to Jesus. Do you know that? Uh, the reason we gave you, parents, the reason we gave you the Jesus storybook Bible is because the whole Bible is about who? Jesus. That it all points to him, that there's lots of different characters, there's only one hero. There's lots of different narratives. There's only one meta-narrative, and it is the story of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is about. So don't be confused, right? As you look at some sayings in the Old Testament, you think, oh, these are just some rules to help us live better lives. As you look at some lists in the New Testament, and listen, there are lists in the New Testament as well, things we should do and, and shouldn't do, and they're all really important, but don't miss Jesus in the midst of it. It doesn't make any sense without Jesus. It's like, uh, it's, it's not like, rather, Star Wars. So Rogue One's coming out. Any Star Wars buffs in here? Okay. 
So a lot of you I'm about to offend. Uh, I'm so confused by Star Wars. I mean, Rogue One, I don't know who that girl is. It's not the last one, right? Where's Luke Skywalker? Like, where's uh, all, all these characters that we're familiar with? I don't know what's going on. It's like the prequel to the sequel, Right? I know I'm offending you right now. Maybe you can educate me later. I have no idea what's going on. Listen, the Bible's not like that. It is abundantly clear. It is proclaiming a Redeemer, a Messiah, a Christ that would come, that he's born. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. But he doesn't stay a baby. He grows up to be a man. He dies the death in your place that you deserve. And he rises again. He ascends into heaven on high. The whole Bible is about him. There's lots of characters. He's the only hero. There's lots of narratives, but there's one meta-narrative, and it's about Jesus. Don't be confused. And that's what Isaiah is in the midst of. He was a great prophet who points to an eternal king, and it's Jesus. And he does it multiple times. I think Seth read it up here a little while ago, Isaiah 61. There's others. He does it multiple times. Uh, the two most significant, maybe well-known, are Isaiah 53, where we have the prophecy of Jesus' death, and then our passage this morning, Isaiah 9, where we have the prophecy of Jesus' birth. And as you look forward to the New Testament, you see a fulfillment of this, specifically Matthew 4. It actually quotes Isaiah 9. It quotes this passage that we're in. You can look that up later, Matthew 4. It points out that Jesus walks these same lands that are really hard to pronounce, in Isaiah 9, that Jesus goes on to walk these same lands. This is where he lives, that he's the ultimate light in the darkness through his life, death, and resurrection, that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. And so that's the context. That's the prophecy. Verse 6, we're going to hone in on that uh, really for the rest of this series and for our time, uh, just our next few moments together this morning. He gets into the names of Jesus. Remember the significant names of Jesus. The first one we come to is this name, Wonderful Counselor that Jesus puts the wonderful counselor, uh, counsel of God on display. And he does it even as a child. Right, look at verse 6 again with me. It says, for to us a child is born. So this is significant because Jesus was fully God, but he also had to be fully man. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so he lived a sinless life. He can relate. He was fully God. He was fully man. And that's really important because Jesus died the death in your place that you deserved. He took all of sin upon himself. He was the just, the holy one, and the justifier. He took our penalty. And so as Isaiah talks about this, it's not just um, he's throwing that in there. It's a cute little story to talk about a baby in a manger. No, he's saying, for unto us a child is born. That's really significant. Jesus was born as a baby. That's what Christmas is all about. He was fully God. He was fully man because he takes upon the sin of the whole world. And so even as a, a child, he was a wonderful counselor. We see it in places like Luke chapter 2. Jesus is just 12 years old. I don't know what you were doing when you were 12 years old, but I was not in the temple arguing with teachers of the law, right? Jesus was, right? These were teachers of the law in the temple who hung out there. They were trained, brilliant minds. And we read about it in Luke 2. It says these teachers were amazed at the understanding of Jesus at 12 years old. Like where most of our kids are playing video games. 
people are amazed by this 12-year-old boy, Jesus. So he was a wonderful counselor, even as a child. He, he spoke of truth in ways that people hadn't heard of before, and it continues in the Gospels. John 7 is a really great one. The Pharisees are trying to take down Jesus in John 7, and so they send some officers to arrest Jesus, but they don't go through with it. And they, the Pharisees look at these officers and they say, well, like, what are you doing? You were supposed to arrest him. And they, and they step back and they say, um, they say this. They said, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. And so I, I know this was written a long time ago, but if you just try to picture that, the Pharisees, people who don't like Jesus, who want him dead and arrested, they send these officers, say, hey, go arrest this guy. The officers show up to Jesus they start talking with him, and they're so amazed, they're so stunned by his thoughts, by his intellect, by what he says to them, that they forget to arrest him, that they don't want to arrest him. I mean, if you can just picture that, it'd be like, I don't know, some TV episode, uh, a comedic uh, cop is, is coming up to some people to try to arrest them, and he just gets, he just gets delayed. He just gets distracted because they're so incredible, and somebody comes along and says, weren't you supposed to arrest him? I thought that was supposed to be you. And because they're so shocked, they're so stunned by Jesus, this wonderful counselor. They've never heard anybody speak like this. We see it over and over, this display of, of Jesus being the wonderful counselor. John 4 is another popular one, the woman at the well. Uh, if you're familiar with that story, he talks to her and just starts with something extremely common in that day, which is water in a well. Something people did Every day, Jesus starts there. But then he takes it a step further. He begins to talk about her relationships. He talks about her marriages. He says, I know you don't have a husband. You've had five, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Like, boom. Right? Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And he goes from her, her physical relationships to spiritual relationships. He takes us back to the beginning. He's a great preacher. He's a great counselor. He takes us back to the beginning, to the, to the water. And he talks about this living water, that all these relationships in her life, that all these other things in her life, they ultimately won't satisfy, that only a relationship with God will satisfy eternally. Jesus is the wonderful counselor in every relational, emotional, physical, spiritual need. And just like the woman at the well, we desperately need his counsel. Don't we? I mean, if you think about your life, do you, do you need the counsel of Jesus? Do you need the direction of Jesus in your life? If you say no to that, you need his counsel more than ever. For your lack of awareness. For your pride. If you say, and you sit here right now, Tim, and you're thinking in the midst of the season as we approach the end of the year, you reflect on everything in your life, and you just think, I'm good. I have enough counsel. I don't need this. I mean, this is a cute story, Tim. Thanks for sharing it with me, but I'm going to go to lunch, and I'm going to be fine. Listen, if that's you this morning, you, you need some counsel more than anybody else in this room. Because we all need more of his counsel. Listen, I went to seminary. I paid a lot of money to study this counsel. I spent a lot of time writing papers and memorizing verses and studying the background and the context, and I need this counsel. And I need it more and more every day, right? I have three kids. Uh, parents, I don't know. Again, I don't want to freak you out. I don't know if you realize this, but you have 
You have souls that you're shepherding. Not just brushing their teeth and, and getting them to bed on time and making sure they eat a meatball every once in a while or a green bean. Amen. You have souls that you're shepherding, right? That's kind of crazy. I have three souls. I have a, a wife who I'm in charge of, of leading and stewarding her relationship with God, her relationships with others. I have, in my case, a church that I'm, I'm leading. I never wake up and just think, I got this. Ever. <laughs> We're two years into a church plan. I never wake up and think, I got this. I always wake up and think, I need more of God's counsel. What do I do here? Where do I go here? How do I say this? Listen, in all spheres of your life, your work, your relationships, your finances, your Christmas season, you need God's counsel. Just as much as the woman at the well needed God's counsel, we need his counsel. Yesterday, our church got to be a part of this Christmas block party uh, right behind us in this neighborhood. And it was the second year we got to do it. And a lot of people helped put it on that several churches partnered up to do this. And we got to serve up gifts and the gospel to about 900 kids. And if you don't know much, this backyard that we uh, are in front of is an incredibly impoverished area. Uh, tangibly, in real tangible ways, but also spiritually. There's a lot of brokenness. We can go into stats and talk about all those things. It's gotten better over the years. It's gotten better, but it's still deeply broken. And so we believe this is a, a mission field for us as a church, where we can be a light in the darkness, where we can help see that gloom turn to glory, like Isaiah talks about, that we can be conduits for God's blessing in this neighborhood. So yesterday, a bunch of people showed up at 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning and gave out gifts to kids who wouldn't normally get a gift. Some of the kids got up and sat in line at 3 a.m. for a $10 toy. But they didn't just get toys. The, the design of this event was to section off these kids and families, and before they got gifts, we proclaimed Jesus to them. So some of you, even in this room, I would talk in English and share the gospel in English, and then uh, my friend David in here would share the gospel in Spanish, and then other people would do that. There was a woman crying. There was a woman being prayed over. There were people grabbing Bibles. We had a, a table of Bibles. We learned our lesson last year. I didn't think any of these kids would want these Bibles. Right? I thought they would all give us the Heisman. And go run and get those toys. But listen, all these kids and all these moms, and it was true yesterday, we just had more Bibles. They wanted a Bible. They wanted the counsel of God. They wanted his words. They were desperate for them. And listen, as I saw that and even thought about it again this year, I just thought, man, do we have that same kind of desire? Do we have that same kind of desperation? I don't know your story. I don't know what you're going through in life, but I would imagine you have it a little bit better than they do in this neighborhood. I would imagine if you look at your circumstances, your finances, it's a little bit better. And I think for us as a community, specifically, even here, Phoenix Bible Church, I think that helps us lose sight of our need for Jesus, right? Because of comfort, because of consumerism, because of an ease in life, not that we don't have struggles. We're not desperate for, for God's word the same way they are. Are you? Did you grab your Bible this morning? 
Did you open up your app and think, I got to do this? Or did you just say, I'll just look on the screen. It's all the same. Are you desperate for the counsel of God? You should be. Because while you may not be physically or tangibly as broken as some of these people, we are all spiritually broken, and we need the counsel of God in every avenue, in every aspect of our lives. We need it. Just like the woman at the well, just like these guys in this neighborhood, we need the counsel of God. And so how do we seek out that counsel? How do we understand that counsel? How do we listen to God? Listen, I know for a lot of us, we like to talk, right? We like to talk. We like to talk about what we know. We like to debate the finer points of theology. But how many times do we just listen, do we investigate, do we understand and apply the counsel of God's word? Do we get together and look at it? And set up appointments with our spouse, with your roommate, with a friend, and here to talk about God's word. When you're giving counsel to a friend, do you talk about God's word? Do you cling to this? That's what we need to do. How do we do that? I just want to give you a few points of how we live this out. The first one is this, that we measure all counsel against the counsel of Jesus. We measure all other counsel against the counsel of Jesus, the counsel of this world, from self-improvement to everything it tells us that will satisfy. The world has lots of counsel, That everybody in the world is always counseling you, that every music that you listen to, every TV show you watch, every person you talk to, they're counseling you. You're being counseled. It's just a matter, is it good or bad? Is it true or false? The thoughts that you wake up with, they're counseling you. Are they saturated in God's word, in his counsel? That the world is, is counseling us. And so everything that we think about, every sex, every substance, every success that promises to satisfy, we need to measure that counsel against the counsel of God's word. Do you see it? That we measure everything against his counsel. That that's what tells us if it's good or bad counsel. Does it agree with the words of Jesus? Does it agree with God's word? If it doesn't, it's not good counsel. And so we measure the counsel of the world against the counsel of Jesus. We also measure, and I think maybe this is even more relevant and important for us today, we also measure the counsel of the Christian world against the counsel of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. Um, there's, There's a lot of Christian books and blogs and podcasts that a lot of us are exposed to that are on uh, national bestseller lists that are really popular, trendy blogs that are people who speak in the name of Jesus. You think, well, they must know what they're talking about. Listen, you need to always measure everything in the Christian culture, subculture, in our Christian world against the words of Jesus. That this is our ultimate counsel. This is our ultimate authority. And so last night, as I was preparing for this, I saw some books on my child's floor, and one book, a little devotional for a child, the the front cover said this. It said, you are special. And it was a Christian book. And I looked at that, and I looked through it a little bit, and I thought, you know, that, that is true. We talked about that. Children are a gift. They've been knitted together in their mother's womb. They are so special. But the author left out a convenient truth that while they are so special, they are also so sinful. Right? 
that the Bible says that, the counsel of God says that, that no one is righteous, not one, even your sweet little baby, even your nine-year-old, even your 15-year-old, that no one is righteous. So they are so sweet, but they are so sinful. And so you need to take that book and you need to measure it against God's word. You need to take the speaker you listen to during the week, the trite sayings that maybe even you say, you need to measure it against the counsel of Jesus, that we would measure all things, even the music we listen to. Listen, this may touch a nerve like the Star Wars as well, but Caleb, like, I'm just going to say, throw this out there, just because it's safe and fun doesn't mean it's right and true, right? And so some of the music we listen to, maybe it's some, some, some good sayings, some nice principles or values to think about, but is it in God's word? Is it Christ-exalting music? It's not like you only can listen to that and you're checking every song, like, is this biblical right now? No, but some of you bank on these songs that are talking about a ship's sail is torn and, a, and lots of water, and you're like, you're banking on this. You're living your life for K-Love, safe and fun for the whole family. Listen, I listen to K-Love on occasion, but you need to go to God's word. His counsel measure all things, the music, the preaching, the books and the blogs, the sayings need to be measured against the counsel of Jesus. Because why? He's the wonderful counselor. He is the one, right? And so we need to always come back to that. And so we, we measure uh, the counsel. We measure the counsel because we give counsel. We don't just receive counsel, we give counsel. And listen, your friend in, in their marriage who's pondering divorce, they don't need a trite saying. They don't need a platitude. They need the counsel of Jesus. Because in their marriage, as, as we talk about divorce being at a, a sky-high rate in our country, the reason that is is because nobody's looking at this for counsel, right? They're looking at our emotions, at some of our songs, and just saying, hey, you do what you need to do. She hurt you. He hurt you. Move on. That's not the counsel of God's word. And so we need to take our friends to the counsel of God's word. They need substance, the counsel, the wonderful counsel of God's word in their marriage, in their spiritual life, in their job, how they work. I mean, it applies to every sphere of life. What are you receiving in counsel? And what are you imparting in counsel? Listen, my prayer for our church, Phoenix Bible Church, it kind of makes sense, is that we would be a church that's saturated in the counsel of God, his word, the words of Jesus. That when someone comes to somebody in our church, they know they're going to get the counsel of God. And maybe you don't have the verse memorized, but you're going to say, like, I don't know. Let's look at God's word. Let's look at God's counsel. Let's look at that together. Let's get together for coffee because I don't want to just give you my words in our community groups, in our counseling relationships, in our sermons, in our conversations, in the lobby. I don't want to just tell you what I think or my opinion. I want to give you the counsel of God. That's my prayer for our church, that we would be marked by that, that in the urban core of our city, that we would engage culture with truth and with love, with both, with truth, the counsel of God, and with his love that that would mark our church, that would mark our lives. The second thing is this, that we don't just get better at explaining the counsel of Jesus. We embrace it for ourselves. 
hopefully, hopefully after today, you can explain the counsel of Jesus a little bit better, right? If I did my job. That is a goal. I want you to be able to explain it. But what I know about us is that we come to church. Maybe you've even heard a sermon like this before. Maybe you have listened to Handel's Messiah, and you know Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And you can explain it. But the reality is, as you look at different aspects of your life, you haven't embraced it. You say, I know, I know these things, Pastor Tim. I know that he's my wonderful counselor. I know I should go to him in all things. I know he has a divine plan for my life, my work during the week, my marriage, my kids. I know that. But how many times in your life do you have a difficulty and the last person you talk to is Jesus? Have you experienced that? Maybe this week. Something was stressing you out, and maybe you go to every other person but Jesus. Maybe you go on social media and you post it. Maybe you just speak thoughts to yourself, and you just drift further and further into doubt and to worry. And then maybe like a few days later, you think, maybe I should talk to Jesus about this. We need to go to Jesus first. We need to go to his counsel first. We need to embrace it for ourselves, not just know about it, but trust in it. If you think about it, we're coming to the new year, and so New Year's resolutions are about to come at you, right? So get ready for that. Get fit. Eat right. And as you think about that, listen, when do you embrace get fit, eat right? Is it when you go pick up the Shape magazine? Right? Is it when you begin to study CrossFit and front squats and WOD or whatever that means? Is it when you begin to learn about paleo versus gluten-free and all these other things? Is it when you learn about those things and can explain those things? Does that make you fit? I wish, right? I wish that was, it was that easy. Is it is just as easy as uh, joining a gym or getting a home workout uh, system? No. If it was, all of us would be in tip-top shape. I wouldn't be wearing this sweater to try to cover up my gut, right? It's not when you explain working out, getting fit, eating right, that you embrace it. When do you embrace it? When you do it. <laughs> when you live it. When do we embrace the counsel of Jesus? When you live it. When you go to Jesus. When you listen to his voice. When you set aside time at your house to read the story of Christmas. That you don't think, oh, we've done this before. I mean, that's a cheesy tradition. No. You want to look at the counsel of God. Luke 2 is a big part of that. It's the birth of Jesus. It's when you schedule out time just to sit quietly and pray. It's when instead of putting on something in the car, you put on a Bible app or, or something else where you can listen to God's word. It's when you stop and you go to a community group and you stop all the chaos of life and you get around some other people that God is speaking his counsel through and you listen and you learn that counsel. Uh, we all need to grow in that. We all should be desperate for the counsel of Jesus. We need to embrace it, not just be able to explain it. Listen, I know as we go into this Christmas season, we talked about names at the beginning some of you have names that are describing yourselves, maybe even right now. Maybe you said it this morning. Maybe you said it this week. I'm stressed. <laughs> I'm exhausted. 
I'm a failure. I can't get this job right or these finances right or this relationship with God right. And maybe this morning you just feel like those names define me right now. Those names are owning me right now. That stress, that exhaustion, this difficulty, this conflict, you say, that is what my life is about right now. It's defining me like a name. You need to know as we look at the Bible, listen, this is really, really important. Jesus is the name that's above all other names even those names that you may have called yourself this morning or this week. That when he enters into your life, when he invades your life with his grace and truth, with his wonderful counsel, that he changes things from gloom to glory, from darkness to light. He changes your name, that you're no longer called stressed or exhausted or sinner. You're called saint. You're called son and daughter of the Most High God. That Jesus is the name above all other names, and he renames you. That's the story of Scripture. That's the story of Christmas. That's what you can walk in this morning. That whatever you're going through, whatever is naming you right now, you have access to the cross and resurrection. You have access to the name that is above every name. That you can be saved in his name. You can repent in his name. You can be healed in his name. You can be renewed and restored in his name. Those of you that are tired, you can be renewed and restored. You can find rest in the name of Jesus. And so listen, as we go through this series, as we go through this Christmas season, that's your hope. That's your hope in your harsh reality. It's the name, the wonderful name of Jesus, his counsel is everything you need to live this season and every season in your life. You need to, listen, as we close, you need to make the decision in this moment. There's lots of other counsel I could go to. There's thoughts in my own life I could go to. I am going to run to, I'm going to cling to the counsel of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the name of Jesus, the name that is above all names. And God, I pray in this moment that all these men and women who have names uh, given to them at birth, but maybe they have some some new names that they've added on of, of, of sins in their lives that they're struggling with that are crippling them even now. Maybe a past, maybe a, a present that they feel owned by, like their name, it's, it's controlling them. And God, I pray in this moment, you have them here in this moment, sovereignly at an appointed time to break through the falsities of, of the name they've given themselves and to give them a new name through the person and work of Jesus. That you call them redeemed sons, daughters of the Most High God. For every man and woman in this room who has trusted in you, that's their name. And so, God, I pray that they would, they would come to grips with that. They would begin to walk in that in this Christmas season. They would point others to that truth in this Christmas season. And that anybody who in this room hasn't done that, who hasn't uh, received their new name in Jesus, would do that now. You wouldn't think about something else that's going on today, something this week. God, you... You would call them to yourself in this moment that they would have a new name that is available to them through Jesus, that they would trust in the name of Jesus now. Now, God, I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that we would respond to the name of Jesus, the wonderful counselor who you have given so graciously to us. Uh, it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <laughs>